Welcome back to another episode of Being an Artist is fucking killing me. I'm Corinne. I'm Rainy. Welcome back. Happy Tuesday. Happy day 17 of grayness. Uh, just like so depressing the first 30 seconds (laughs) it's just been gray for like it feels like like all of january like i don't think i've seen the fucking sun i think you're probably right if it's been sunny we haven't noticed because we're not allowed to go outside so yeah i don't know about you guys yeah we're at stay-at-home lockdown yeah nobody knows what that means because are the rules any different than they were before in the gray zone i put that in quotes no Mm. No, I will say uh, certain sites have been shut down. Like I know that like, yeah, they have started deeming certain construction sites non-essential again. Interesting. Yeah. So I I know that that's only because Lucas, but like, I don't, I also read a thing that now it's mandatory. If you're outside, you have to be wearing a mask. I don't know how true that is. I don't know about that, but I honestly have been for a while. Like our, we live right downtown and so our neighborhood, like I don't really can. Yeah. I like am never like if I'm outside going to the grocery store, like even on that corner of church and Carlton, it's like jammed all the time. Like totally. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I, when I'm like running, like I'm going to go for a run after this and like, I am not going to put a mask on, but I like, I'm also, there's more space over here. There's not as many people. Yeah. Like I have like a running path that I'm, it's often like just me or like somebody that's like opposite direction. Yeah. Or like, you know, and I will say like everyone that's running, isn't wearing a mask yeah I don't know I mean when I was biking in the summer I wasn't wearing a mask yeah exactly yeah, yeah we don't really know what that means but so nobody knows what stay-at-home orders mean because non-essential businesses can be open for curbside pickup but you're not allowed to leave your house for non-essential reasons hmm. I'm over Doug Ford hmm. he's a fucking idiot I'm getting real frustrated I'm getting frustrated with all of it like just do a fucking hard lockdown and I'm over him like I said last week like I'm over him threatening us like a bunch of fucking toddlers and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like over I'm just over him I'm over yeah him. if you're gonna do a hard lockdown you need to do it across the board and you need to have mass testing and then you can isolate the people that are or the communities or the whatever and actually let them give them time to heal and give them the resources and the space to do that. You also, know? Like, dare I say it, maybe we should like, maybe Trudeau and like the Canadian government should step in and be like, everybody's in mandatory lockdown because nobody's numbers are good right now. Like yeah. literally nobody's. Maybe the Atlantic, but like it's because they fucking did a hard lockdown. They shut themselves out, you know? Yeah, I don't know what the solution is, but it's definitely not telling people to stay home but not giving them money to stay home. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Like EI is not easily accessible and it nowhere near covers like what people need. And you know. Yeah, of course it's, it's a lot of bullshit. Bullshit. Um, this week we have Fiona Sauter. Yeah. Theater maker. Very cool person. This was a lovely conversation we had right before the holidays. Yeah. And she's, yeah, she's so lovely. And it's, it's, she was, super easy we kind of I find that with certain guests it's it's really easy to have a conversation with them it feels like very laid back and mm-hmm. sometimes they're a little bit more formal and that's fine too but this was like just a really nice conversation to have yeah it was but before we get into it you guys our patreon we're gonna say it every week and I don't care if you get tired of it you can always press the fast forward button yeah plus 30 plus 30 but our patreon is active it's live we're brainstorming new ideas of regular content to put on there because we appreciate everybody that donates and subscribes and interacts with us on there. 
Mm-hmm. And for $1 a month, you get access to everything we put there. Everything. Yeah. And I just wanted to say that, like, it's interesting, this whole whole pandemic, that how artists and how a lot of artists we've I've noticed in the past, like, a few months, especially artists that were, like, um, recovering alcoholics or, like, at, struggle with addiction, how many artists have, like, relapsed. And I think it's really important to check in on your friends and, like, yeah. make sure they're doing okay. And, I mean, it's been, like, 10 months now, almost a year. And I think it's, it doesn't get easier. It gets harder and harder. So check in on your friends and make sure everyone's doing okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's start spreading some more care. Yeah. More care. Okay. Let's get into it. Here we go. So Fiona, you're, are you the director? You're the director of Bad Hats Theater. Is that correct? Yes. I am the, the technical uh, term is that I'm the co-founder and artistic director. Oh, okay. So you're the co-founder as well. Who did you found it with? Uh, a friend of mine who I met in theater school, her name is Nicola Atkinson, and she is our current literary manager um, at the company, but on a uh, leave of absence. She's, she's been dealing with an illness for uh, several years. She's had like three brain surgeries in the last like, oh, wow. little while. Wow. So she's, uh, she's an incredibly strong person who, um, whose spirit is still very much alive and guiding the company. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, she's, she's in a more of like a, a background position at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, with like everything that happened or I could actually first, how do you like when, since you're the, like the co-founder, et cetera, do you curate works for the company or what is the exact, like, what is Bad Hats Theater? I guess is like a, probably a better, <laughs> a better question before we get it. What the hell is Bad Hats Theater? That's a good question. Um, well, the whole thing operates, um, we don't really call ourselves a collective, but it, 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 I think other collectives could watch the way we work and feel like there's some familiar aspects to what we do. Mm-hmm. And that like the answer to, to your question, do I uh, curate the works? I would say yes, but not alone. I think we all contribute to what it is we're going to be doing with you know each season. Um, but we're also not even really in a place yet where we're programming full seasons. I mean, I guess you could, there's companies whose seasons are one show. Mm-hmm. Um, but in our capacity so far, we don't really like, we don't refer to what we're doing as a season. Like we don't even use that language yeah. really. We just are kind of um, pro- project to project and uh, we're growing. So the way that it began was, as I said, in theater school, uh, my, my best pal Nicola and I were, you know, at George Brown theater school in the distillery and you know, we were there in our corsets studying classical theater and doing all that and waving our hands around. And we were like, this is like, we like this We're good. We like, we think we're doing fine. This is great. But you know, that ain't it kids. So we, we, we were like, let's, let's move on from this and make our own work, which is what we've, um, what we did upon graduation. We sort of took something that I wrote in third year as like a solo uh, project. And then as many people do, we took something we worked on in school and, and then we sort of expanded it and made it into this one woman show that I performed and we co-wrote and Nicola directed it. And that was sort of our first foray into like producing new work, which if you saw that now, based on what our history has been since that show, it would feel like a full different color, which is interesting. And we're still negotiating how we, uh, you know, I guess brand wise, continuity wise, you know, scheduling wise work in uh, sort of the vast array of um, styles and uh, types of projects we're interested in pursuing under the umbrella of Bad Hats. Bad Hats is now known, um, I think, as a TYA-focused, so theater for young audiences-focused company. Mm -hmm. A lot of the work we do um, is for young people. Um, This is 
a sort of very direct result of uh, a production of Peter Pan that we did um, five years ago in uh, Port Perry, Ontario, a friend of mine, Landon Doak, who will probably come up in this podcast a bunch because we are uh, very close and we write uh, everything together. Mm. He, uh, yeah, he approached me to work on a show at his father's brewery called the Old Flame Brewery in Port Perry, Ontario. And we wanted to do an adaptation of Peter Pan. And we did that there. And then Bad Hats took over the production and we sort of rewrote and, and finessed it and expanded it and did a tour in Toronto. And that kind of launched the, the more public awareness of what our company is and our style and what we do. And that sort of paved the way for a bunch of opportunities for us. And so now, yeah, we're working on a lot of new works for young audiences. The mandate is really all about um, new multidisciplinary work. So like high octane um, physical storytelling. I don't even know what high octane is. I've never said that. <laughs> I was like really into it. I was like, wow, that is a, that's like a good like grabbing <laughs> word for grants. Yeah, it's high octane. It's like, it's all grass roots, grass fed, but we sweat. Farm to table, everything. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, it's, uh, yeah, so, so, but it is that. It's, there's a lot of physicality. There's a lot of like, you know, um, movement and gesture work and mime work uh, coupled with a lot of um, music. So all of our shows, even if they're not musicals, as it were, are uh, heavily, they heavily involve like original uh, music and sound design. So, um, yeah, and, and uh, yeah, we're expanding in, in many ways, I think. Um, yeah, I guess that's, a, that's like a, I guess enough of an answer. I can, I'll take that back. That's what Bad Hats does. We make new work. We make new work for all audiences, audiences of all ages, but we especially focus on including young people in it and treating all our audiences um, as young people without condescending to them, if that makes sense. Right, yeah. right, right, right. So there's, there's younger people in the show as well as that's your audience like your target audience well there's there's a, um, a focus on hiring next generation artists or new generation artists so because we were founded as like a, a group of young people mm -hmm. um, out of theater school and slowly collected what is now a band of like five core members um, and we're all you know we're, we're we're burgeoning on the moment where we're no longer in that bracket of like new generation artists because we're all soon to turn 30. Um, <laughs> but I think a lot of the work is informed by this idea that um, there's a lot of um, abandon and freedom and risk taking that happens when you're in uh, your younger years as an artist and also in your younger years as a person um, and that that has like intense value when it comes to building new work. So we, so we try to bring in as many people who are, um, uh, you know, fresh to it in their own way and certainly fresh to us. Like we're trying as much as we can now to expand um, the bracket of people that we, that we bring into the fold, right. which, is, which is hard to do, but it's, yeah. When you say that, like, um, a lot of young people have that, like, risk-taking that, like, a lot of people, once they get into, like, the later, not even later, mid years of their, of their arts career, how has that, um, how have you noticed that? Like, have you noticed personally that you're less willing to take, like, artistic risks? And what does that look like for you as, like, an actor or, like, a writer? Yeah, I think totally. I just think we get older and there are suddenly, you know, in positive ways, but mostly it's like, oh, there's consequences to your actions and there's rules and people are watching you. And there's like, as you grow older, there's so much less room for reinvention and for failure and for, um, you know, 
shifting of your identity in uh in arts and like um and in and in life it's like you know it's hard to um hold on to the feeling of when you're young of becoming you know what i mean this idea of always becoming or or growing into pieces of yourself mm -hmm. there's this idea somehow that i think it's basically because of capitalism but like we're not allowed to keep learning at a certain point we have to sort of fulfill a function yeah. and uh arrive to a purpose and um you know be an expert in order to succeed and certainly for uh you know different sectors that's that's more true like you know i think uh oh, we can get into that in another in another <laughs> age of this discussion but i think generally yeah i just you grow up and fear takes hold of you and like i become more and more afraid even and the more success that i've gained which i don't know how to measure that exactly but the more that the more that people pay attention to me the more fearful i become that they will fall out of i will fall out of good favor so you're fumbling like you yeah well i was saying like you know even in introducing what bad hats does i think the fumbling i'm talking about refers to like how to brand ourselves mm -hmm. you know because people need to understand and put you in a category and i think that um while i think part of that is the business and necessary and i do want to be clear about what we're doing and part of that is you know public perception of what you're doing informing the clarity of thought with which you do the things you do i think is valuable however i think that you know there's also a certain amount of um stifling that that brings about and and saying okay so we have to be this one thing now and how do we teach our audiences to um you know enjoy us as many things and uh and also like where you know there's so many questions it's like do we need to put every single thought that we ever had as five people who run bad hats right now into bad hats i don't know you know what is what is an umbrella for and um yeah we're constantly asking those questions and trying to let ourselves evolve in ways that feel um organic to us and not always based on what people you know need then again you got to sell tickets so there's a lot of, there's a lot <laughs> yeah yeah i think like a lot of the when you talk about like risk and um just like thinking about uh like you don't want to like your reputation because you've spent like a lot i mean like me as well everybody like as a young artist you like you spend so much of your time kind of creating like what you think and like an homage to being an artist or what an actor or a dancer is and you spend a lot of time kind of like getting respect i think in your younger years of being um of like whatever your whatever your interest is um mm -hmm. and i think that, that you get a little bit more scared that you're going to like lose that right like you're going to do one thing and it's going to like topple down <laughs> mm -hmm. all of the, like the work that you had you had done to make to make that work yeah you know? so it's kind of like a double edged sword in a sense really because like working this way to like get respect and then but also like being scared all of a sudden and yeah totally i think it's like if we could live all of us without fear think of what we do you know and think about what the art that we make would be i think that's so interesting um and i think there's a lot of contributing factors that are like both social and economic that contribute to yeah. our individual fears and it's hard to um survive and also to explore mm -hmm. and so i think that like when i think about bad hats it's like i i would love for the 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 as we begin to include more people and have like you know the capacity to to foster more work and make more spaces it's like i would love if the the reputation um 
this is it. Like folks at home, write this down. This is what we, we want to mean by you. But I would love if not even people knew us for like the people that worked with us at the very least knew us for creating spaces where um, like failure was was possible and welcome, right. and you know re reinvention of um, ways to tell stories uh, was really like possible mm -hmm. and invited in the room. But I think like, I like to think about like, you know, John Kaplan who, who passed away a few years ago, was this great reviewer of theater. And one of the things I love so much about John is that like, John had this sense of everybody who was an artist from like the moment he met them in theater school, because he always would go to see the theater school shows to when they, you know, either left the industry or passed away was like, they were on a journey, right? So when he would see them do bad work, he'd be like, oh, isn't it so interesting that, you know, so-and-so's doing, this work, I think, remember when they did this show, it reminds me of the quality they brought to that. I wonder why that was this time, like without sort of blaming people for mm -hmm. not being totally successful and like always, like his curiosity about people outweighed his judgment all the time. And I feel like that perspective is so important. Mm -hmm. And I'm guilty of like not always carrying that through and, and being like, ugh. Like, you know, when you get mad at bad art yeah. and you're like, this, <laughs> like, why would they do that? Well. Like, this sucks so hard. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, or you know, your taste is different, or you know, uh, there's so many reasons. Like, yeah. think of all the things that you're like, this is a dumpster fire. Like, I wish everybody could just know that it's Jenny's fault, you know, or whoever, <laughs> right? Whatever the reason is. Or like, you, you had know, this much time to rehearse. This is why, you know, nobody knows yeah, exactly. that. Yeah, exactly. So, and then it's like, and then, and then talking about that leads us to like the category of like, I don't want everybody to like always be gossiping about like why it was their process was hard. Like, let's yeah. not invite that. Let's all just like know that like the thing we're doing is difficult. Mm -hmm. That said, like, I think it's also really helpful to like, when I talk to students, it's like, they're like, what should I do to like become a good artist? I'm like, go to shows and decide if you like them and then figure out why not if you don't, because that will like, mm -hmm. you know, process of elimination. If you're like, I don't want to sit in a theater and experience that. It's like, okay, you don't want to make that. Mm -hmm. And that's helpful to know. Right. Okay. Yeah. Being like understanding yeah. of things you dislike I think is actually more helpful than things you do like mm -hmm. because it's really easy to default into those positive things into like and not it's easy to examine why something irks you or why you're like have a reaction to it yeah totally I think it's it's yeah I feel I, I got into a bad hat one of my co collaborators who's a part of bad hats Matt his name is Matt Polybiak he's the, the the managing and artistic producer of bad hats and he there was like a period, we always see theater together and there was a period there where he was like, I'm doing a new thing where I'm going to start by saying everything I liked about the production. Mm -hmm. And then I can talk about, you know, what, what I didn't like, mm -hmm. but it, it's like, and it was a like a really kind of amazing shift. And I sort of took that upon myself. I didn't always do it, mm -hmm. but uh, he was, was great about doing that. And it meant that there, the first thing was to celebrate that the thing happened mm -hmm. and that people managed to pull off what is like, near impossible that's why there's so little theater in Toronto and in Canada comparatively right. to what there could be or what there is in other parts of the world and uh yeah celebrating it first and going this is all the things it was here's why I don't want to see it again ever. Right. <laughs> yeah there's this like funny I mean that just kind of made me think of this like hilarious I'm sure you've seen it like meme going around talking about um the bad part about post it's like everyone's gonna have like a COVID fringe show this year Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like, why does everybody like, it's, I feel like everybody had the same reaction, which was like, like when they like even like thought about that, just like mm -hmm. a bad and why we don't want to. And I think this goes to a little bit to what we were talking about a couple weeks ago, Corinne, like nobody wants to relive this. 
So like immediately when we like sit down and watch, I mean, right now, maybe in like 30 years, there'll be like a brilliant, like Tennessee Williams style show about quarantine. But like, as of right now, like nobody in this upcoming year is going to want it. Like, as soon as we sit down in the theater, we're going to like, immediately be brought back to this memory of like being in lockdown and the bad parts about it right Mm -hmm. and it's going to kind of like taint how we review or how we see the work whether it's a good quarantine piece or not you know (laughs) yeah yeah well I think it's hard as artists to not make the thing that you're working on about the things that you're feeling in that moment like that's sort of part of the job is to do that um and I really appreciate the artists who I've worked with who are like you know I'm really like I don't know if that makes me soft I don't know why the word that came to mind was like a softness or sort of like a malleability to being like oh yeah like the thing that I feel directly applies to all of this and it's like how could it not you know like this is the lens I'm seeing things through but people who go yeah it's about that but this is like this is what the art is about like this is the story we're trying to tell Mm -hmm. people who like Mm -hmm. um can overcome whatever they're bringing to the work and that's not to say that people's you know um feelings or experiences aren't welcome in the room and that like the art you know Mm -hmm. it's a balance of like the art being informed by who's there and what they're feeling and also the sort of very rigorous focus of the vision of what you're trying to make in the first place but I think it's yeah it's hard to like no I can't imagine being in a room right now and not being like wow this feels like it's a little bit about isolation don't you think (laughs) there's something to be said about having distance from what you're working on if it's like a personal project or has a lot of emotion for you I find the more distance you have or the more research that you've done about it only adds value to the work and like what you're talking about brings it back into this like it's about the art it's not about the emotions or the experience that I had in that moment right yeah and I think that's why having a a really wide array of um, people in a room whose approaches are, are different. Like, mm-hmm. obviously you want it all to complement each other. Like the flavors in the stew need to be delicious. However, <laughs> having people in the room who have like a more academic lens on a project and then people who are like, you know, more, uh, less cerebral and more, um, sort of approaching that work with the other side of their brain, I think is really valuable. Mm-hmm. And like, that's one of the things that I love about, about bad hats actually is that I'm so different in the way that I approach things from my collaborators. Like call them like the producer boys and like Matt, Matt Slipiak, who I mentioned and Victor Pakinko are like the, the sort of two headed producing team. Um, and they just have this completely other lens. And I think that is part of our, our sort of our, our strength. Um, but that can be, yeah, that can be really valuable. Not that they're always the artists in the room, like making the work from the ground up, but often they are, and they have been in past. So both on and off the ice, as it were, it's a different, like there's various flavors. How do you, um, when you guys are writing or creating as like a group and there's maybe like somebody is so passionate about like, no, 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 this needs to happen. And one person's like, no, 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 this needs to happen. (laughs) Um, How do you as a group kind of deal with that? Uh, Good question. I think there's a uh, sometimes spoken and mostly unspoken rule that like the, the best idea wins and, and sort of preciousness kind of needs to be left at the door. That's not always the case because we're human people and we get attached to our very delightful little ideas right. that we think are very much ones that should win. Um, but I think it's just a matter of trying it. That's what we usually do. We go, okay, let's do it this way. Let's do it that way. And we all go, yeah, this was better. And you like, I think our tastes are really aligned. And so the clarity of the story we want to be telling is, is there. Um, so it becomes, I don't think we, well, I mean, I guess we meet that problem all the time, but I would never say we labor on it for much more than 
you know, a few minutes or like the next day we, we choose to do some sort of experiment with it or try things, but we'll, we just give it a go. Right. Um, so there's always like yeah. an option to try it physically and less of like mm-hmm. an immediate shutdown. Yeah. Yeah. Or we're like, if we're doing it at the table and we haven't gotten our feet yet, we'll just like, you know, we'll be like, oh, should it be the name? Like, I remember we were trying to name a pirate in Peter Pan once and we like <laughs> had the person and everyone was like, I think it should be this. No, this is funny. Or no, this one sounds like kids will like this because, yeah. you know, it sounds like a poop joke or whatever, um, which is a conversation we have a yeah. lot. Um, and uh I think I mean, anyone, anyone who's ever been in a theater room writing a new play, this is like not a revolutionary idea, but we just had, you know, the actor try it yeah. um, with all three. And then we were like, well, we all laughed the most at this one. So it's going to be this now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's just how it goes. But same with like complicated ideas, you know, like as we're building the thing that I'm finding right now, like with writing, you know, Peter Pan in so many ways was like a, a it was like a, a thing that oscillated between a lot of like intentional um, work and a lot of accidents. It's like the way, the reason it happened was just kind of like very happenstance. Like I was directing a show out in Sudbury for another company, Landon, who I kind of knew from school, but I only knew him as that guy who I think plays guitar and has long greasy hair. And I was doing a production of American Idiot. And I was like, Alessandro Costantini, who, if you don't know, you should interview him. He's a wonder, a great wonder of the world. Um, he runs a company called Yes Theater in Sudbury. And I'm a resident director there. And, and he was like, we were sitting in the, the lobby at, uh, at our school. And he was like, we, we can bring someone else in from Toronto. Like, is there anyone that from the school that you want to bring in, like a young artist? And I was like, I think that guy's like, look at him. He's like grungy and greasy. Like, he looks like he's already in the show. <laughs> and so that's why we cast Landon. And that's how I met Landon. And like, it was in Sudbury that he was like, you're dressed like Peter Pan. And we, we had this whole conversation about Peter Pan. And that's how, you know, six, now we've done this show for six years. So, <laughs> It's like, the world is funny. Um, and uh, grow your hair long, boys. You never know. <laughs> Especially if you're going to be a theater boy, grow your hair long. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everyone should just try everything once, yeah. you know? Um, and uh, anyway, so ac- accident is a big part of sort of, and we didn't mean to, you know, get picked up at Soul Pepper. No one called Soul Pepper and was like, would you please have our show? Like they approached us because the right person saw it and they were talking about it. And that was just, I guess that's not accident. That's because there was quality that someone recognized and that should mm-hmm. be, you know, recognized. noted. Yeah. But it's still like some miracle thing occurred to get us to where we are. Like, you know, a lot of it wasn't really our doing. Um, yeah. And we're really grateful. So now moving into like, you know, what well, is, I guess, what's the, like, what's the term to like sophomore follow-up for a thing? Or it's like the like curse where you like have to follow up your good, your, Oh, no, is that what it is? Remember. It's like some sort of curse where it's like, I don't know, you pretty, you write your first album and then you have to follow it up and everyone's like really has high expectations. And it's like never as good as the first. <laughs> that's I right. don't know so what that's the thing we're experiencing. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that just a sequel? Aren't most sequels just not good? Yes. But that's why we're not writing Peter Pan 2. Oh, yeah. right. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Well, uh, can you tell us what story you guys are, is it like a, a known story that you're like kind of reworking yeah. or what is it? Yeah. So it's, it's Alice in Wonderland, oh, nice. which oh, I've lovely. discovered since choosing to do that with the group that Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland are like married yeah. all the time. Like you find like, I have a, someone gave me a, like a really old vinyl record that has like Peter Pan on one side and Alice on the other. And I was like, oh, and there's like a book we have where half of it is Alice and then you finish it, you flip it upside down and the other half is Peter Pan. And I, and so there's this marriage of these two worlds and they reference each other a bunch. Mm -hmm. Um, Or like Jay and Barry references like Lewis Carroll a lot in Peter Pan. So that's been kind of fun to discover. The only way that I think it will like reflect Peter Pan is, is is like in our 
the style of the way that we present work. And um, I think kind of the, I mean, I'm writing it. So <laughs> there's that and Landon's writing the music with Victor, who's our, yeah. our executive producer is also co-composing. So people wear a lot of different hats. We have this thing going right now where like we were in love with like the, the, the story and like the direction we've taken with it. It's still growing and um, that's really exciting, but definitely there's the pressure to follow up the thing, you know, and, and um, it's really been hard for me, especially in the early stages to get the, the notion, like the voice in my head saying, you have to get this really right. It has to be exceptional or um, this will be it, you know, out of my head. And so to like sit down and try to write with that in my brain, it's been really hard, but I think that that is kind of slowly going away. Yeah, I think that just happens, you know, there's just, it's just, there's no really getting around that. I find it, yeah, sometimes it just is there. It's always going to be there. And I feel like it. it's probably not going to be gone until like it's on the stage and you see it, you know, and even then, totally. you don't yeah. even know, yeah. <laughs> well, the good thing about Peter Pan was that it had all these incredibly enriching, informative experiences in its infancy as a project, like for a project to get produced fully go on tour across the city and win three Dora awards yeah. as it's like workshop is insane. Right. And so the learning outcomes of like the, what we did was this brewery tour in 2016, 17, something there. Um, and we learned so much from that. And the, and the, one of the stresses is like, you know, we, every year we changed the script, even we did it at Soul Pepper for three years, yeah. every year we'd go, you know, it would be more fun or, you know, we could add, or, you know, what else we could do mm-hmm. is this. And that was such a gift like that. You don't get to do that a lot, um, especially as like a younger company. So Alice hasn't had that um, trial, right? You know, we've got, we've had a few workshops. They've been kind of brief and we're going to have another one in the new year, which we're really excited about, but uh, it's going to be a bit more of like a trial by fire. So there's like a stress, you know, around that getting it right. Mm -hmm. But I think we also are wiser than we were when we wrote Peter Pan. So, right. Do you have um, a date officially for when like, Alice in Wonderland is going to be up or are you, you know, what is time? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I can't actually answer that. Okay. Uh, take me for a drink sometime. Oh yes. Of course. Um, <laughs> it would have, I can say that it, that it may have been hoping to have happened uh, in 2020 and didn't. Um, so it, it uh, I'd love for it to be in 2021. It may be, it may not be yeah. um, dependent on a lot of different things. Of course. But Right. Kind of it, the, the notion is as soon as possible because we're, we're raring to go. It was hard to like, we had so much momentum and then we had to kind of like everybody, everybody experienced this. Which is awesome. mm-hmm. How do you go about your writing process? Do you look at like, do you watch, do you read the play? Do you watch the movie? And then you just like immediately like are inspired by certain scenes and start writing those? Or how do you, how's your writing process? It seems like you adapt kind of like you write it yourself, but you're mm-hmm. kind of adapting it from what a movie, a script, a little bit of everything. A little bit of everything yeah. for Peter Pan, you know, uh, I co-adapted that with the the actress um, and like general creator artist genius who is Rianne Spitzer. She's she's been with the company for a while now um, as like a sort of she's often featured and is great. So we 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 co-wrote the adaptation together, and that one Rianne was a little bit more fresh to the story. I had like been reading the book for ever. Mm. Um, that one we pulled directly from the novel because the novel itself, if you haven't read the novel of Peter Pan, it's just way better than everything else. Like it's so rich and so amazing. Um, and we did like, I think what, like, (laughs) I feel in so many ways that we were, um, maybe this was the right way to do it. It went fine. It went great. But like, 
we did what like I think like <laughs> two people in seventh grade would do is like well you take the first half and I'll take the second half <laughs> and then we just brought things to each other and we're like I think this and mm-hmm. like sort of made it up as we went and then Peter Pan was like so informed by the cast that we brought like in so many ways I mean they all get you know a very a small percentage of royalties every time Peter Pan is licensed now across Canada the original cast just get gets a little bit because everybody contributed right. like there's so everyone's so fucking funny so they will say things as like they just paraphrase their lines and we'll go oh that's better that's the <laughs> line. you know that happens all the time so um that one was really informed by the book the conceit for like when we changed it from the first production going into the tour that that got recognized by the media um <laughs> was based on like a the Jeremy Sumter 2003 Peter Pan movie, which is like um, a pretty well done movie of Peter Pan, I'd say, um, except that it's still, you know, rather racist. Um, but it uh, it has this one shot where like Smee the pirate like turns to the camera and breaks the fourth wall just one time. It just goes like, oh, it's all, it's all a bit tragic, isn't it really? And then he like goes back to the story. And I thought that was so delightful. And so we sort of flipped the whole thing on his head and made it all about Smee the Pirate, who Matt Polipiak, our producer, played in the show, and I sort of knew from school, but he was so good in the part that we were just like, let's make it about him. And I was also playing Peter Pan and was like, I don't want it to be all about me. That feels very narcissistic. (laughs) So it still was like, I couldn't really help it. I was still Peter Pan. But like, yeah, so that sort of answers your question. (laughs) I would say it's different every time. We're starting to refine like what the rules of the game are and what works and what doesn't. With this, uh, for Alice, it's like, you know, Matt, who provided a lot of um, writing for himself as as his character in Peter Pan, is dramaturging this production of Alice. Um, Landon and Victor are co-writing the music and have like sort of really different skill sets and that really complement each other well. Um, and for Alice, a lot of people say they don't want to like consume other versions or adaptations of things, and I'm not really like that. Like I'm like, what are what did you do? What did you do? What did you do? What did you do? Okay, cool. And I kind of know that what I'm going to do is going to be authentic to us because it can't not be. So I'm not really worried about influence. And I also think all of art is just kind of stealing in its own way. So right, I'm fine to be like, oh, that's a great way to solve that problem. I will take that and then eventually know that like once it gets into the hands and the mouths of all of our artists, it will grow into becoming really ours. Right. So right. I have a question about the licensing and royalties. How did you go about doing that for Peter Pan? Uh, well, it's a long process. I mean, we we, re- we like we got a lot of consultation from um, other companies who had licensed like their own original productions or like individual playwrights who had, um, and we you know chatted with some like entertainment lawyers that mm-hmm. we know to sort of um, consult, but sort of came to it all together. I mean, like, again, the producer boys really championed what that agreement looks like. And we all came to basically um, agreements around what everybody should get each time it happens, but it's always negotiated in like in good faith, right? Like, I think there's a sort of standard rate, literally right before this, I was talking to somebody about like what the, what the rates are. Like, they were like, what are these things? It's a friend of mine who wants to license the thing. And it's always different, you know, depending on the circumstance not depending on like how much you're friends with us, but like, you know, it's a, if a community center wants to do our version of Peter Pan, we're not going to say like, no, no, it's this much. We're going to be like, what are your means? You know what I mean? Like we want to make it accessible if people want it, Mm -hmm. but also um, part of it is, you know, a way for us to slowly, you know, use that as a tool to inch our way towards sustainable operational model. Cause we're still not in that phase yet. We don't, we don't pay ourselves for our work except for on contracts. Mm -hmm. So like Mm -hmm. a lot of unpaid, time and labor as we inch our way to like that part of the 
life cycle of a company where you get to have a bit more sustainability and operational funding, which also allows you to include more people in the fray, which I think is really of importance to us. But I, I, I'm sort of reticent to bring people in who are new without compensating them handsomely because mm. this is something we all agreed to, you know, right. at the bar that uh, new, new members haven't yet. So totally. Yeah. Is it common practice for independent theater companies to license their work? I, I don't know. Like, yes, I think if they've got, it's usually the playwright, okay. right? Like it's usually the playwright on their own. This one happens to uh, be something that like, I guess because I'm the artistic director and the one of the writers and the composer is like one of our company members as well. Like Landon Doak is a associate artist. It's like, um, it's always been Bad Hats, Theaters, Peter Pan. Everyone like, it's different because when we started on the show, when we did the brewery tour, we, everybody signed an agreement that like we owned the production, mm -hmm. but that the royalties would go to like the three writers being me, myself, me, me, myself and I. Didn't mean to come out um, and is not how I feel at all. But, uh, yeah, so Bad Hats has like owned the, the show for a long right. time. And I don't think that's the case with like, you know, who I'm kind of like, of course you can't think of a single play right now. Like, you know, if Jeff Ho goes to YPT, YPT doesn't own Jeff Ho's play. Right. Um, but so Jeff, but Jeff Ho might go and license Jeff Ho's play. Totally. Uh, I'm just like thinking about it in the context of like how that relates to like new dance and choreography work, because I have never met like a dance company that has licensed or um, like done that for dance, like original dance work. You know, and then it's like, how do you, like you're saying, become sustainable in your art practice within a company? Like, do you just like, yeah, I don't know, you know, because I feel like in, sorry, go ahead. When like choreographers get brought in to like make something, they're just like being paid to be there. They're not being paid for that work to continue on. Mm -hmm. And like, how does that work become sustainable? Or like, how does it live after the fact? Yeah. Or I feel like what's I observe and you would know better than I, but like what I observe being more common in dance is like that people will you know, a, a company or a festival might purchase a work that they've seen mm -hmm. and those that that choreographer and the dancers that were in that or replacement dancers for that work will come out and do it. But it's less like, can we buy the moves that you did mm -hmm. and do our own production of whatever Vizari dances, like mm -hmm. um, went into that show that I love, Decoherence, like, or, or something, you know, that's more common that it's also like, how do you measure like the ownership of like an order of words versus an order of gestures? Like that's, kind totally. of fascinating you know whose is this and like wouldn't it be so easy to plagiarize dance it is sure yeah. it's, it's very is. easy <laughs> it's essentially like almost impossible to sue someone for plagiarism in dance yeah and that's like so interesting thinking about like the autonomy of um the artist right versus like movement versus words but there's like still so much movement within you especially your type of theater right mm -hmm but it's all mm -hmm. within that same structure or, um, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Just having like the autonomy over it. Yeah. It's like, it's one of those things that you also like get into when you create things collectively uh, or like that have contributions, you know, it's even like, so I just did this show at Randolph, Randolph College for the Performing Arts. <laughs> we did a show that Landon and I wrote sort of for the class. Mm -hmm. They asked me to direct a thing and sort of in true, true form to what I usually do. I was like, I have this show that we just wrote that we hadn't written and I lied and said that we wrote it and then we had a month to write it, um, which was great because deadlines mean that stuff happens, yeah. which was great. So now like a brand new 80 page musical that exists that didn't before, <laughs> which is very cool. Um, and 
we had to be really clear that, you know, as we were workshopping the work with the students, that like, if they say something like, I wish the line was this, and I put it in the show, then we immediately get into a problem um, with like, uh, you know, ownership of, um, yeah, the rights to like the words. Mm -hmm. So mm. It, you have to be really clear about um, how that works. And while still letting the pros, like, you know, the process kind of organically bubble and grow as it's meant to, like, I'm very interested to see if um, the same thing befalls us with Alice. Yeah, it's really the whole idea of like plagiarism and how you, yeah, it's very, very crazy, all of that stuff. So in the short story you sent us, you talked a little bit about how you sustained an injury, a couple injuries, actually, it sounds like, and then you had to go uh, perform in Winnipeg. Um, how, what did you have to do? How did you have to adapt in that moment to be able to perform while being injured? Well, I feel like the, there's a running joke now and was, there was before this happened. And now, especially because of this story, like amidst the company that I'm like just a very klutzy person. Like I, I feel like I ride a fine line of like, sometimes I think I'm quite graceful. And then other times it's just a disaster. So this was one of those like weeks where we were working on Life in a Box, which is a show that um, Landon Doak and Matt Finland uh, co-wrote and it won Adora this year for that production run for Outstanding New Musical. So congrats to them. And uh, yeah, it's like a show that happens Anyway, the set is like made of these big metal bars. Like it's all, it's like basically a jungle gym that we built inside this garage where we did the show. And uh, I wasn't building it, Remington North built it um, and we sort of designed it together, but but we had to go and like tighten all the boats at bolts and finish the thing and hang this draping and do all this stuff. Like we were in the middle of like a very indie production vibe. Anyway, I drove, I drove home um, with my friend Nicola and there was this woman on our street who was having like a shit fit about something. And we pulled the car into the driveway. Long story short, got out of the car immediately to like deal with this cat, like, you know, thing that was going on. And the car was like left on and it rolled down the driveway, like got put into neutral classic thing. And I, for some reason, our brains were like, I know what we'll do. We'll just stop the car with our arms. Like we'll hold it in place. Right. Like instead of just being like, uh-oh, let it roll or yeah. turn it off. Um, anyway, so I got crushed between like a cement pole and the car door <sighs> that oh like got bent. And now the car door doesn't really like close properly. So that's still like that. Anyway, my arm was like all busted up and luckily nothing was broken, but it was just like one of those tech weeks from hell where like, why would this have to happen? It was like, I needed to do 14,000 other tasks that were already like uh, impossible to do. And this, anyway, it was, just bad. it was just bad. I got hurt. And then, and then they were like, okay, it's not broken, but like, don't do anything with it. And then I'm like, I'm going to move all this set. <laughs> Luckily we had like all the people helping, but like, was still doing that and then was like okay well it's finally healing and then I promptly fell down the fucking stairs and tore my MCL and then had to like basically go play Peter Pan how did I adapt I put on a brace and kind of suffered through it like I had this meeting with my physiotherapist where she was like you know I'm like what's your advice she was like don't do what you're about to do and I was like, well I'm gonna do it so <laughs> handshake nice to meet you goodbye it was sort of how, what happened there wasn't really a world where um we could do Peter Pan yeah on that short notice anyway so you just had like a wing like a Peter Pan well, I had, wing. like my arm was a bit better like I was okay. fine but my and I just kind of like adjusted the choreography and like limped where possible and didn't jump as much right and that was kind of it but it's hard that show is like it's like a train you get on of adrenaline and it lasts for like 75 minutes and then you just fall you can you know it's hard to like play and also try not to follow your impulses 
mm-hmm. so that you could protect your like your leg I don't know I wasn't very good at it I hurt myself more and now I kind of have knee problems <laughs> yeah that's like an issue with when you're sick or when you're injured it like really takes you out of a if you're trying to perform with it because you're like you like kind of talking about like we were talking about before about risk like you lose that sense of risk and like presence while you're performing like you're no longer like it's like very theatery school to say but like you're no longer like free and loose <laughs> so, <laughs> So you're, you're feeling like a little bit more like restricted, right? Like you're like, I don't, well, I can move over here and this will be hilarious. But then you're like, whoa, but that also hurts. So like your body, and sometimes your body has these like, you know, these reactions to things that you have no control over. Like maybe you just like muscle moves differently. And that's definitely not a movement that should be in character at that moment. Or, you know, it's, it's kind Mm -hmm. of hard to be so focused when you're performing because performing is such a focus that you need like you mm-hmm. need to be like so present and so this is the thing um so when that does happen it's it's really really hard to have your brain elsewhere totally yeah just like how it changes you for a little bit <laughs> or you just end up injuring yourself and hurt for the rest of your life it was yeah it just kind of I mean I don't know it was one of those things it's it sucked and and but but Winnipeg was like we were out at the at Manitoba Theater for Young People. They were they they not they didn't um, whereas some theaters license the production and just say mm-hmm. like give us the materials and we'll do our production. They brought ours out there and it was like this phenomenal experience. That that company is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I loved working with them. We all did. And what one of the fun parts was that we got to live in like they put us up in in what felt like um, a ho- between a hotel and like residence at college or something we were all on like split between like three floors living with our friends and just it was like prank city and just like (laughs) nonsense I hid in so many closets and uh we like just made food all and it was just like a delightful kind of like staycation with our friends where we had to perform like a billion times a week and that was kind of like we would go you know in a way hang out with 300 children and get our workout in and then and then just have a great time eating donuts and playing with each other the rest of the time. It's a really fun contract. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, I'm from Manitoba, so that makes me feel Yay. good that Manitoba. I for young people does that. <laughs> um, I feel like we've heard that from a bunch of people that have went out to do theater in Winnipeg. That's been like a wonderful experience. Yeah. Because Daniel Williston went out to do Shrek. Yes. And said yes. it was also lovely and great. Besides being like freezing. <laughs> yeah well we, we had like a we did one of those I mean never mind I was gonna bring up the weather I'm not gonna talk about weather nothing is more boring I'm not gonna do that the weather was what it was but yeah like Pablo who who runs that company is like one of those I think he's he's got that like visionary heart and spirit where it's like absolutely tied to who he is and how he wants people to feel it like is expressed in his programming it's expressed in his staff and in his way, he just goes about um, his work. It's like, it's, it's like knit to who he is. And it's really inspiring also, like as an artistic director, like sometimes I even hesitate to call myself that, but I feel like I'm still burgeoning into like what that role means for me <laughs> and learning a lot about it um, this year, especially. Uh, but seeing him do his job, the way he does his job really inspired me. Cause I was like, oh, it is possible to have who you are mean an incredible amount to what it is that a big organization does like you your your outlook really can influence everybody and uh but there's like a a grace to it you know Mm -hmm. he had us all over for thanksgiving dinner with his like we like made like turkey cards with his beautiful daughters it was like 
delightful. Yeah. So <laughs> nice. It's just that like Manitoba love that happens. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you, I, I, you mentioned that your, <laughs> how your self-worth relates to your art is mm-hmm. like been causing you like an emotional, how has that just been recently with the pandemic or has that been like an ongoing thing in your career? It's been like a forever, yeah. <laughs> forever thing. I think, I think it's very hard to feel, um, valued, um, in, a discipline that is so um, like scarce for opportunity. And I say that coming from a place of like utter privilege. Like I was one of the people who was fortunate enough to come from like a middle-class family who's white, who like is in Canada and, you know, they were able to send me to an arts high school and that like shaped in immediately who I was as an artist. And um yeah. So, so that said, it's still, you know, part of, part of my, my life is like, you know, feeling like crap about the work that I do. And that like, I don't actually like that happenstance and like uh, people that I've worked with have got me to where I am and that I'm actually have no part in my success. And that, you know, uh, I was talking about this earlier just today, Vanessa Sears and I are like the co directors in our apprenticeship training at the musical stage company right now um, through their like RBC apprentice program. And, um, we were both just discussing like, you know, that fear that's sort of sewn into us as women that like, um, I feel like part of making good art is like the not knowing and being comfortable to not know stuff and try stuff. Mm. And like I was saying at Bad Hats, like the kind of rooms that I want to be in and create and, um, Bad Hats has totally been a space for that. But in other spaces, like I feel very, nervous in moments of contemplation or to, to, to pause and consider. And that's definitely worse on Zoom. My friend Tanya Rintoul was saying that the other day. She was like, silence in a room of theater people. And you're like, let me think about that. It's so much different than when you're on Zoom and you're like, one second. It's like, da-da, da-da. <laughs> like it's just terrible. Yeah. Anyway, but I think generally like I've sort of, there's been a lot of learning subconsciously that I need to know everything I, uh, for anyone who's been marginalized in any capacity, I think it's, it's just sort of the, not that my experience as a woman is comparable to other, other categories of marginalization, but I think the common thread is that like, you know, you have to be exceptional mm-hmm. or else you, you won't survive. And I think that that is, uh, you know, hopefully changing and something we need to like, in some ways shift in the industry, in some ways shift in ourselves, like the perspective of mm-hmm. that we don't have space to be in process, you know? Yes. Or that, like, you know, process is part of the process. That's so silly (laughs) to say, but yeah. 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 Uh, I feel that in the sense of, like, um, there's no, you don't get as many opportunities to fail as a young emerging female in your field. Yeah. Whereas men can drop the ball a thousand times. (laughs) I'm generalizing, obviously. For sure. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like, I feel like, um, I want to, I, I, the common, it's a combination of like, you know, hard work and, uh, rigorous prep for the like places you're going to be in, um, in order to, you know, uh, feel like basically Vanessa and I were talking about this like sense of surety, like knowing that like, this is my 
perspective. This is my taste. This is what I want to have happen enough, knowing that enough that you can be confident in being malleable and like taking pauses and being influenced by other people and not have that like threaten anything in you. And I think like defensiveness in the face of other ideas is a different beast when you've been, um, you know, made to make yourself feel smaller in order to be allowed to be invited into the room. So I think it's like, there's a whole like score of, of qualities that you adopt, adapt, adopt, um, <laughs> uh, that, uh, that again are like all fear-based. Um, mm -hmm. so it makes sense. There's this great line in, in, in actually in Alice in Wonderland that like, I don't think this is necessarily was about this, or maybe, you know, Lewis Carroll, Charles Dodgson is his real name, like knew this, um, <laughs> of this experience of women, but like Alice meets the red queen in like Alice through the looking glass. And she's, she like, they're talking. And then the, suddenly the queen goes, run, run, we have to run. And they run and they start sprinting. And it's like, Alice is like panting and she's like dragging her behind her. And she's like, keep up, keep up. And, uh, and then finally they stop and Alice is like, we're exactly where we were before. And she's like, yeah, what did you expect? And she's like, well, I thought, like usually when I run that fast, I get somewhere else. And she's like, no, no, you have to run twice as fast just to stay in the same place around here. Mm. And I was like, oh, and that sort of was like <laughs> a big turning point for me in like writing the show. I was like, oh, this might be a little bit about the female experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I find that specifically, I mean, that happens that happens in every every kind of industry like we know that in like the work environments there's like less female ceos you know but i find it specifically it like almost to be exaggerated in industries where um in arts industries where like gender like example for dance like the amount of females that are dancing versus the amount of males that dance is like 75% to like 25%. Right. So the fact that it's like so interesting that men, I mean, like we're at equal opportunity for everybody, but now all of a sudden we've like reversed it and in the dance industry. And I'm, I actually don't know much about if it's like this in the acting community as well, but like, so now there's more male choreographers though. So why, yeah. if we have a 75% industry of female creators, choreographers, why out of why is there more of this 25% area above us and controlling and creating when yeah. there's not an equal like amount of people? Yeah. And so because of that, it's, it's actually like, I mean, it's not harder. I, it's hard in every industry. Like it's not equal anywhere. And we, and we know that, I mean, we're trying a lot of places are, but I find like in industries like ours, it's, it's, it kind of feels so disheartening because you like Corinne said like men can drop the ball a hundred times and get praised for their work a woman can present something one time and never see you'll never see their work again mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and that like kind of adds more pressure to you as like you said you're kind of making yourself smaller you're more scared to like showcase something you're more scared to just try things that might not work because you may never get that opportunity again yeah, because yeah. you're diluted throughout the system. Yeah, it's totally bananas that a uh, female-dominated industry, all of the positions of power are held by men. Mm -hmm. Bananas and apples and oranges, like that's so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> like, is like, it the same in in like the acting? In oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Predominantly, predominantly male directors. Right. Like, I mean, and again, like I think, and I've heard this from other dancers that like 
generally the changes that happen in theater, the dance world is behind in terms of adopting that same like wave, those waves of change, which I can only imagine is really frustrating for the both of you. I don't know if that's, that's your experience, but I've heard that before. And I, I think it's changing, like in lots of ways, there's like a reckoning that's happening in, in, in lots of parts of our sector. It's like, it's insanely overdue and still slow to manifest and everyone's tripping over themselves to try and you know be part of that in a way that is helpful mm -hmm. um and i think uh i'm just glad it's happening um and uh i think yeah there's like a soul pepper recently did a study on like the the amount of female leadership and like directors and playwrights like it was like something like in Canada last year this is going to be a complete misquote but like in something like last year 30 percent less than 30 percent or something of plays that were produced were by female playwrights and so they've got this top women program where they've got I think it's six writers who are being commissioned to make new work um, that will eventually be produced which is really cool but it's the study was like staggering. I was like, yeah. it's all those things that, you know, generally we go like, that's getting better. I guess I can stop, I can stop, you know, rallying against it. And it's just not, you just can't stop. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that study and those statistics came out very similar to the time where everybody was in uproar about the national ballet, only having male choreographers in a season or something like yeah. that. I mean, it was all just, everybody was like, yeah real well, upset about it yeah we've seen like in a couple instances even just like I think it was out in Ottawa they chose or Montreal they chose all male choreographers for like the for like a festival just here in school, Toronto right it was a it was the yeah. dance school and they brought yeah. them, oh, and like all of yeah. them are white also yeah. <laughs> here in Toronto like they just did a like a call at Toronto Dance Theater for like choreographers to um new like emerging choreographers to work with the company and like over 50 percent of the is men <laughs> or, so it, yeah. i mean it's like it's everywhere and like you said it's, it's hard because it's like it doesn't really feel like it's like people get enough wars about it and then it's like yeah. nobody really cares like how much impact is it like how much are people refusing to go to these shows or these festivals yeah. Because no, not, that's not happening yeah. at yeah. all. And if you're a dancer who gets cast in one of these shows and you want to work and you haven't been working mm -hmm. very hard to say no. And that is like, you know, a, a sort of um, general, this is like a really big generalization, but like a sort of sense of uh, feast, well, I guess feast or famine is sort of like the, the, like the, the tropey term of like, is the case for all of those industries. It's like, it means that, the it's hard to enact like change and feel like the thing that you should prioritize is social justice over like feeding yourself that's very hard to do and I acknowledge that and I also mm. like when I think about these people who like when I hear about you know the National Ballet and it's like it's all male choreographers who go like how could you see that and be like that's fine and I do say things like that but then I also acknowledge that there are things that I've woken up to this year that I think I thought of either consciously or subconsciously as barriers to inclusion in all sorts of ways that aren't barriers that I, that I have had to dismantle and like reckon with and um, begin to undo. And I wouldn't say undo fully because I'm still in the process of undoing a lot of the paradigms that I've been based on um, a combination of like where I like began to exist and was raised and who I was raised by um, mm -hmm. to uh, complacency on my part. Like there's a whole spectrum of reasons in there that mm -hmm. this work for me is only happening, you know, 
better late than never, but it's a lot like I'm certainly there's like not nothing that I've done in my life before. I never thought of it, but there's a lot that needs to be done starting now. And I, I feel like I, I have empathy for um, everyone in some capacity who is trying to um, uh, get it right. I don't have a lot of empathy for people who have um, known things and ignored them. Um, and then again, I say that and I go, there's things that I have known on some level and ignored. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's hard to condemn. It's just like, you know, let's move forward. And I, that's a really blanket statement. Let's move forward. But that's all we can do. It's like I, we're yeah. all in this together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but some people have not been in it together with us for ever. Yeah. So long. Yeah. Um, totally. I along that, I, sorry, I have like kind of two more things that I want to say. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Um, on that same like vein of ideas, that's like what worries me most about coming out of something like this, like the pandemic and like the lack of work is that that divide between the feast and famine is just going to get so much bigger. Hmm. And like the kind of work that we will, like dancers and theater artists will accept, will, there'll be like less bargaining power as an individual artist and we'll have less, um, collective like say in things, which, which independent and dance and in independent and dance independent theater and dance excuse me will I don't know do you understand what I'm trying to say totally understand what you're saying I think that's a really valid fear I thought about that too I think though what gives me a little bit of hope what is like I was just talking to um one of my mentors Ray Hogg who's just a genius and he was talking about how um he's some experience he had in school where he had to work within the parameters of like a specific way of learning and he was like this is bullshit I just want to do these things and a friend of his said you know working within this these parameters is going to mean on the other side of it you're going to be like so much more wildly creative you can do things within this mm-hmm. and you can do do you'll you'll explode on the other side of it and I think like I feel the same way about like you know, writing a grant, like the parameters of a grant are like, I have words and I have a limit of words and I have to convey this thing. And, I, and, and the result of like often writing grants for me is that like the clarity of thought artistically that comes of that is really valuable. You go, oh, this is what I mean by this. This is what I want it to be. And this is why it's important. Okay, right. So that should exist in all, all pieces of it. And I feel like in quarantine, the parameters that are being put on art which like I fully acknowledge like suck like doing musicals especially what I'm doing like online sucks I'm sure doing dance <laughs> online on computers sucks like it's just <laughs> all of it sucks it's called spade a spade but um I think having this like what it feels like is like there's pot like a pot on a I'm sorry a lid on a boiling pot of water and when it comes off there's going to be all this stuff that everyone's been sitting on like our motors are still turning even if they don't feel like they're turning, even if you haven't like put a pen to paper or like gotten up out of your fucking bed, like there's stuff that's happening in you artistically because it forever is and it will come out on the other side of it and there'll be this explosion of art. So my hope is that like, actually there'll be like a bunch of innovation. And once we feel like the world is back to being okay, maybe, you know, all the rich people, the government certainly isn't going to help us a lot, but like maybe the, the rich people will be softened a little bit and they'll give us more money or they'll whatever. However we get there, we will find <laughs> avenues for um like safe and sustainable and like like positions and moments where we can be paid to make all these things we've been sitting on so i'm hoping that's what happens of course that's very idealistic but um i'd like to think that like there will be more space made and that people can also come out of this being like 
yeah, I've just spent a year sitting on my ass I, and that's worth more to me than doing this. And like, just accept, like, I think hopefully mm-hmm. people can also as individual artists be more rigorous with the things that they choose to work on. Yeah, um, totally. Uh, we have a question for you, Corinne. Is being an artist fucking killing you, Fiona? <laughs> <laughs> We're all dying. I think being an artist on my way to death is the only thing that's keeping me alive. So my answer is no. Um, <laughs> being an artist is fucking hard. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, if I'm going to die anyway, I will, I will much rather have sung songs and open hearts and um, connected with people along the way. <laughs> so I, I think, uh, yeah, I really miss connecting. Um, it's been so nice to talk to both of you. This was so nice that you invited me to talk to you. I hope I said things okay. You did yeah. great. You're great. so lovely. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Where can people find you on Instagram or your website? Or yes, you can visit um, our company at Bad Hats Theater on all social medias um, or www.badhatstheater.com. And I'm at Fiona Sauter, F-I-O-N-A-S-A-U-D-E to the R. That's me. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions, if you want to check us out more, go to our Facebook, our website, our Instagram, anywhere we're available, anywhere you can listen to podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, all of the things. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next week.